Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Michael Wald, and you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Today's show topic is why you can't think. So if you're thinking, well, I don't know what Dr. Wald's talking about. I can think just fine. Great. I would have you listen to the show from a preventative perspective. And there are many of you out there, and I know this because I see you as patients, where you clearly have some degree of memory impairment. It might look simply like what lots of adults like to label as ADD, attention deficit disorder. They'll say, I have ADD. Well, ADD is a very specific diagnosis, and you might have ADD, um, but you may not. However, those with ADD tend to have higher rates of developing more serious memory impairment. And you know the most serious form is Alzheimer's dementia. But think of Alzheimer's dementia as it is on one end of the spectrum of brain decay. And then there are a myriad of levels of neurodegeneration or brain degeneration that lead up to dementia. But we know that the statistics for the incidence of dementia is only rising. We also know that the handful of medication that generally speaking neurologist, neurologists make available to people with uh, dementia, they don't work. Um, but they make them available because that's all there is and they seem relatively harmless. That's a whole other uh, area that we might wanna get into at some point. But I thought today I would talk about the prevention of dementia so that you can think better today. I would have to say that for every 10 people that come to me for help in any other health problem, whether it's cancer, fibromyalgia, hypothyroidism, cancer, multiple sclerosis, autoimmune diseases of different types, whether it's lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, etc., there is a memory component to 80%. And what's also very surprising to me is individuals come, with, come to me and I notice these memory impairments and they seem to be entirely unaware of them. Or, and if they come to me with a family member or a loved one, they'll say, oh, no, no, he's always been like that. Well, absent-mindedness, by the way, over the course of a lifetime may be an early risk factor for dementia, just like lack of ability to smell peanut butter is a risk factor for dementia. And for those of you who cannot believe what I just said, I'm going to repeat it. The lack of ability to smell peanut butter and to smell in general may be a sign of increased risk for dementia and also Parkinson's disease. Now, why would that be? We actually know why. Well, think of the brain in your head and think of your nostrils. If you were able to reach into your nostrils and pull your brain matter slowly through your nasal nosages, your nasal nares, pull them out of your nose, what you're doing is you'd be stretching brain matter, right? Of course. The reason I'm telling you this is I wanted you to visualize what we know is a neurologic fact and connects brain decay with problems with sense of smell. Here it is. The brain extends into the smell nerves and the smell nerves by definition are not nerves. Nerves mean something other than the brain. The brain and the brain matter or what form the smell nerves. So if you have degeneration of your ability to smell, you're really saying your brain is degenerating because 
the smell, quote-unquote, nerves are really brain matter. Now, in the study of neurology, they talk about nerves, like the nerves that go into your hands, for example. But they also call the smell nerves nerves, obviously, except we know that they're not nerves. The smell nerves are extensions of the brain matter. I think you now understand what I'm trying to tell you. Now, why would that even matter? Well, if your smell nerves are really brain matter, and let's say you're smelling toxins, plastics in the air, uh, all kinds of neurotoxic chemicals that we're exposed to uh, or just toxic chemicals that we're exposed to over the course of our lives and every second of every day, your smell is directly in, in, in contact with the environment, which means your brain is directly in contact with your environment. And that is one of the ways in which toxins from the environment gain direct entry and access into your brain through smelling. So that long-winded conversation I just had is important because you now know that the smell nerves are actually brain. And we're going to talk about in a few moments nutrition for the brain, which means nutrition for the smell nerves that may reduce your risk of damage to your brain by the uptake of a various neurodegenerative chemicals in the environment and other ways in which the brain breaks down. So why don't I just give you a practical example of nutrition right now? And I would uh, just uh, let you know that I'm going to start to give you lots of examples of different nutrients and why they're important to help you think better. Some of you don't even know you don't think well. And then when you start thinking better, people say to you, wow, I'm, I'm, you know, clearly I notice a difference in you. The problem with loss of memory is that sometimes it is obvious to the person. They'll say, I can't quite, and it's not just memory. It's also that you can't quite get that word out. You can't quite label something appropriately. And again, you've heard the other examples. You'll walk into a room. You don't know why you're there. You leave your keys one too many times in the refrigerator. Um, You're driving along. You're totally spaced out. You don't know where you're going. You don't even know where you've been for a moment or two or even a minute or two. And this is not a rare thing. Okay, so here's the first example of a very important uh, nutrient for the brain. Regardless of the cause of the brain degeneration that results in memory loss. And yes, every form of memory loss has some level of brain degeneration. The brain degeneration may not be obvious on an MRI, which is a type of imaging technique. I'm sure you've all heard of it. Um, It's similar to a CT scan, but it's not. They're both imaging techniques. A CT scan uh, involves radiation, and an MRI does not involve radiation. It's usually used to image soft tissues, uh, issues or suspected issues in the brain. Now, Why wouldn't your structural problems in your brain that are affecting how you think be visible on an MRI? Why wouldn't they be there if there was a problem? Well, sometimes there's a big problem like a stroke. You can see it on an MRI. There may be accumulation of iron in the brain uh, in the form of what's called ferritin. I've seen that before. I've seen that before in people who I've read their MRIs and their neurologist never even mentioned it but they were okay leaving a heavy metal, an oxidizing, degenerating metal in their brain. Uh, Makes no sense. Don't know what to tell you how that happens with trained neurologists. uh, And they're not all neurologists, obviously, but it was this particular neurologist of this patient. So once again, you need to be proactive and you need to uh, take your imaging test, take your lab test, get copies of everything and have someone who's qualified to put it all together do that. Okay. So the first nutrient, which is important for the brain, is decosinohexanoic acid. Don't worry about spelling that out. It's abbreviated D-H-A. Not D-H-E-A, but D-H-A. So D-H-A is a form, is a compound in fish oil. And the brain is mostly made of D-H-A. So on some level, there's always some issue 
with DHA, Nutriture, they call it, regardless of the, the level of your memory problem. And I should just complete my prior thought. When I said to you that why would an MRI show a structural problem, uh, sometimes it can, and I gave you those few examples, too much iron accumulating. Uh, you can see what a stroke looks like on an MRI, something called demyelination. You can see that. But sometimes the problems are microscopic. The structure of the brain neurons, for example, in different, uh, different types of, of nerve cells uh, is affected, but it's on a microscopic level. And until it's on a macroscopic level, no one sees it. And that's actually very, very common. Even just the fact that the brain atrophies, the brain shrinks more or less in some people than others, that is also associated with memory loss. You simply have less brain matter. That's also one of the reasons why statin medications increases the risk of memory problems because statins affect the metabolism of fats and the brain is fat. And statin medications, although they may or may, or may not have their uses depending on what side of the fence you're sitting on, uh, those who take statins will have deficiencies or insufficiencies of a number of fat-soluble nutrients, including DHA and vitamin D and medium-chain triglycerides and their absorption from either a source of 100% MCTs, medium-chain triglycerides, or coconut oil, along with lipoic acid and melatonin, um, lots and lots of nutrients are affected by statin medications. I should also make mention that there are many medications that cause memory problems. And people take their medications and they say, well, I, I don't think my memory problems are from my medications. I've been on my medications for months or years. That's precisely why they might be causing your problem. Because you've been on them so long. It's very simple to look up what the side effects or potential side effects are of your medications. And lots of people say to me, oh, yes, I'm aware that my memory problems and my, my, my mental fatigue and my lack of remembering and learning new materials, recalling the past. And I've been told how this might be from my medication, people will say to me. And as if they now, because they know it, they can forget about it or leave that alone or not do anything about that. So that's always surprised me. If someone's having a side effect, particularly one that affects your memory, that's something you need to pay attention to. I think you need to pay attention to it. Okay, so DHA in a liquid form is best for the brain. If you're on a blood thinner, you, you never take an omega-3 fatty acid without being under the supervision of a trained clinical nutritionist that knows drug interactions and uh, your prescribing physician, of course. Let me just go over a listing of lots of common causes of memory issues. Now, memory issues can be secondary to any number of diseases. So for example, I'll have people with brain cancer and they have memory issues from the tumors, from the inflammation in the brain, from the uh, treatments provided like chemotherapy, radiation, surgeries, scarring, all kinds of uh, problems that result in that particularly heinous condition of um, brain cancer like gliomas or gliomas or astrocytoma, that's another one, usually occurs in children. My point though is, even autoimmune diseases, once again, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, scleroderma, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Graves' disease, many, many others, all autoimmune disease tend to be associated with poor and poor memory and loss of brain function because at least from one way, the chronic inflammation of autoimmune disease can break down brain structures. So some of you have heard my other show on neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is just a term used in neurology that refers to the ability of the brain to reform itself, to repair itself, to reshape itself. It can 
under the right conditions, the brain has a mosaicism about it, an ability to, to change itself against uh, a toxic or stressful environment and resist degeneration. One of the, I think, the most important category of ways in which to offset loss of neuroplasticity, which means loss of the brain to recover, is nutrition. Um, I, I don't see how this is not the mainstay of treatment uh, by neurologists who are supposedly the specialists who deal with this, but I can tell you that I've worked with a neurologist for more than a half a dozen years side by side uh, in the not so distant past and they have absolutely no nutrition training. So that explains why it's not done. But why a neurologist would not take it upon his or herself to research neuroplasticity, its effects and, and its causes and things that influence it, you could not avoid looking at all this nutrition. It's not an easy thing. I mean, I asked my friend, the neurologist, why do you think it is that neurologists are not um, focusing in the area of neuroplasticity with nutrition? And after thinking about it for a moment, he said, it's just not what we do. We don't do that. So I suppose it's very similar to a gastroenterologist who, for the most part, have very little nutrition training. I mean, they know what celiac sprue is. They know about certain malabsorption syndromes. But I would, I would guess also having worked with a gastroenterologist for, again, about a half a dozen or so years side by side that uh, they have no more nutrition knowledge. I was going to say they have no more nutrition knowledge than the average person. But the average person that I happen to know knows far more nutrition than the average gastroenterologist. But just because the, the gastrointestinal symptoms seems to be uh, the area of focus for that specialist, you would think, since it has to do with nutrition, they would know nutrition. But that's an assumption that's based on nothing. And it's untrue. It's just absolutely untrue. So some gastroenterologists will refer to dietitians. But as a dietitian, as, as well as many other certifications and diplomas that I have, I can tell you that dietitians have no specialized knowledge at all in the area of neuroplasticity. So once again, it is up to you, it is up to us to be proactive and to learn, which does bring us to another dilemma. First of all, a lot of the material online that you might Google search is just wrong or it's just not applied to the person. I am not saying that being your own blood detective means you should treat all of your health problems and not seek the help of uh, qualified health professionals in, let's say, nutrition and medicine or whatever it is. I'm simply saying that by educating yourselves, you can make smarter choices as you're working with individuals like this. Day in and day out in my practice, and I practice nearly seven days a week now because it's either that or I put people off for months and I'm not ready to do that yet in terms of scheduling individuals, particularly with these memory issues because every day matters. My point here though is we need to be able to determine what is, re determine what is reliable information or what is not. Okay, that list I promised you that affects why you can't think. Okay, so stress will do that. First, I'm going to go over the list, through the list quickly, and then we're going to take it one by one. So stress, emotional stress, physical stress, how you individually age. We don't all age the same. Our brains do not age the same. Our fingertips do not age the same. Toxins. I don't have to tell this audience that there are an unlimited number of toxins We've only got about six, seven, eight, or nine different ways in which a body can deal with all of those toxins. And if they're fat-soluble toxins, meaning that they're of a, a chemistry that means they have a propensity to be stored in the fat tissue in your body, whether it's the breast tissue, the fat around your belly, or your brain. 
then there are, again, just to take this toxin concept further, you know, everything from heavy metals to, a, to toxic plastics, toxins that your body itself makes, let's say like from your gut, like endotoxins, toxins made from uh, the metabolism of drugs or toxins uh, that are produced as an end result of the dying off of bacteria from antibiotics. I mean, the amount of toxins that we're exposed to are crazy. And we don't need to be, a, we don't need to be exposed to a lot of any one toxin. That happens sometimes. But often, we're not exposed to many toxins. We're exposed to a little bit of, let's say, plastics in the air from the industrial outpouring of the plastics industry manufacturing, which is horrifically dangerous and carcinogenic, and xenoestrogen perpetuating, meaning these plastics uh, that look then act like super estrogens they're out there and we're, and we're exposed to them 24-7. So that's why in terms of your nutritional supplementation, you have to make sure that your blood levels have enough of the different nutrients that have been shown to be effective against mitigating these toxins. So for example, if you want to deal with xenoestrogens from plastics in your environment, so let's say you take quercetin. Many of you have heard of quercetin. And that's a plant phytonutrient. So quercetin has about a four-hour lifespan in the blood, what they call a four-hour half-life. So if you take it in the morning at 8 o'clock, by noon, the level is basically gone, but you're still exposed to the toxins 24-7. So it would be best for you to take that nutrient at least three times a day. And by, by you taking more in the morning, let's say, thinking you're going to more will make you have a greater lifespan of it in your blood, that's not how it works. If you take it at once and it gets absorbed and activated, after about four hours, maybe six hours, it's done. And then you'd have to take them again and then again, at least three times, three times a day. That's what there is for us to do. And boy, there are so many factors that have to do with the timing and the dosing and uh, how you take certain nutrients uh, with or without foods that make all the difference in being able to most effectively manage your protection against environmental uh, influences and uh, why you have thinking issues. Okay, your diet, obviously, maybe not so obviously, your diet does in fact impact the entirety of your health, including your brain. And one of the, uh, the errors I see with individuals and their dietary efforts is that I'll meet with people who will show me their diet logs and I'm very much blown away by them. They look fantastic. And they say, I don't understand, Dr. Wolf, why I have these memory issues. And I'll say, how long have you been eating this way? And they'll say, well, consistently, maybe two years, three years, five years. Some people far less, some people more. And uh, that just may not be enough time. So if you've been eating a certain way 10 years and you're 65 years old, you have had far many more decades of damage potential that you might need half that time, another 20 more years on top of the 10 you've already put in to help restructure your neuroplastic brain. Or if you take nutritional supplements, that is potentially going to help your brain recover far faster than just eating. I think that some individuals put far too much emphasis on the diet, meaning this, the diet is fundamentally important. Of course it is. I'm not arguing that, but I am arguing, and those of you that listen to me know that my feeling is you must also take nutritional supplements. Given the toxic world that we live in, given the rate of degenerative decay that we experience, and given uh, the, the urgency with which uh, we need to deal with the memory and brain problem. And then there's also blood sugar problems, which of course are affected by diet, but not only diet. Stress alone, psychological stress, affects blood sugar. So does pollution. 
If you stand behind a car exhaust and breathe it in, your blood sugar goes crazy. So either too little blood sugar or too much blood sugar can damage the brain and how it functions. And then, of course, there's genetics. Again, these are all factors that can affect how you think. You may be genetically predisposed to poor brain repair, which doesn't mean there's no hope for you. It just may mean that you would have to manage your lifestyle so that it affects your genetic expression in a favorable way. That's called epigenetic influences. Or, as a friend of mine, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, once said, it's called nutrigenomics, how nutrition can potentially affect the expression of poor genetic traits by suppressing them, and how nutrition, whether in the form of supplements or the form of foods, can positively affect the brain function and the rest of the body, of course. And then there's, of course, our old favorite, the hormones. So usually low levels of different hormones are associated with breakdown of brain structures. Whether we're talking about pregnenolone or DHEA, testosterone, estrogen. And again, I want to emphasize, I've said this on other shows, that your blood tests or your saliva test results for hormone levels may look fine. The blood levels and the saliva levels, please hear this, have nothing to do sometimes with the ability of the brain structures or any, stru- any body structure to recognize the hormone and therefore be affected by it. So in other words, someone might have low levels of testosterone floating around in the cerebral spinal fluid that bathes the brain. But because the brain is smart in that particular individual, it increases its use of the testosterone even though there's less of it that it's soaking in. Or maybe the level of testosterone, let's say, is high in the cerebral spinal fluid that bathes the brain, but the brain is somehow becoming testosterone resistant. And like any tissue that becomes testosterone resistant, let's say like a muscle tissue, like your bicep, it atrophies, it shrinks, it loses tone, it loses power, it loses, its structure decays, it ages more rapidly. It's just all bad, just all bad. So for those of you just joining us, my name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. We're talking about why you can't think. And I just went through a quick list and I'm going to go through this again about five seconds of what the the quick things are that can create brain decay. Then we're going to go through each one of them. So get ready to write down some of the nutritional suggestions. The first one I gave was DHA liquid, docosnohexanoic acid. The average individual probably of normal weight needs about one tablespoon taken in the morning away from food. The other one is ketogenic MCTs, medium chain triglycerides. Medium chain triglycerides is a category of fat. And there are different length of the chains, the chemical chains of medium chain triglycerides. In other words, think literally of you holding a long chain in your hands, a metal chain. So throw the the long one down because we don't want long ones. We want medium chains. So pick up a medium sized chain. Now, could you conceivably pick up five or six or 10 different medium-sized chains from the ground in front of you, let's say, and they are slightly different sizes, but they definitely all fall within the medium chain size, right? What I'm trying to tell you is something that you may not have known before, that medium chain triglycerides are a broad category of chain lengths, medium chain lengths, but of varying sizes, And those medium chain lengths that were studied the most in science for brain health, whether we're talking seizures, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's disease, demyelination of the brain, brain recovery from stroke, you name it, I wanted it in my medium chain triglyceride product called 
ketogenic MCTs. I start my patients on a tablespoon a day. And if they get a loose stool, I just cut back a little bit on the dose until it's all good. So this way, a person does not have to follow some strict ketogenic diet because the ketones that they want, they will get them high in the brain by consuming MCT oil. So I'll say it again. A lot of people out there wasting a lot of time, years, and a lot of neuroticism trying to stay on a medium chain diet, a ketogenic diet, when really all they need to do is take the supplement. That's, that will do it. Even uh, medical studies found on PubMed.com, the National Library of Medicine, they came up with the same conclusion I did after 29 years of doing this, that it's just not needed. Of course, you want someone to have a healthy diet, whatever that might be. But if you want a ketogenic effect, because ketones, everybody, they are the fuel, the healing fuel for the brain and nervous system. You got to have that. So I take that every day. Let's talk about one of the hormones that are important, a couple of the hormones. For memory, and in individuals, particularly individuals 50 years old and older, you tend to have hormone resistance or just outright low levels of hormones. I never check the hormones anymore because of decades of checking the hormones. Sometimes they were low, sometimes they were not. What I was interested in, did the patient respond? Did the person respond to the hormone substitution therapy? And if they do, that's what matters. So uh, I see people wasting hundreds and hundreds of dollars on saliva hormone tests. It was a big fat at one time, not nearly what it was, thank goodness, but almost always a waste of money. So pregnenolone is a type of hormone that's very high up on the hormone chain and it has brain stabilizing effects. It's also one of those hormones that is illegal for those who participate in sporting events like the Olympic levels or other types of events uh, that are uh, professional level athletic events. And I can tell you uh, from personal experience, taking pregnenolone and taking DHEA, that's an adrenal hormone. And, w- and recently, I just upped my levels and increased the frequency with which I take them throughout the day. And I can understand why baseball players and others take these hormones. I mean, they're hitting more home runs. They're super strong. Their reaction time is much faster. Their mental focus is much better. All the things that we want. So I was quite surprised uh, because I'd be giving this information out to uh, not just athletes, but to just people uh, using how to use hormones correctly for not just athletic enhancement, but overall anti-aging effects, you might say. Really, I should say healthy effects because we can't not age. We can't anti-age, but we can reverse a variety of factors that we consider biological aging. So at age 52, I decided to make some changes and do some of the things that I'm telling my athletic patients uh, to do, very high-level athletic patients. So I can tell you, for example, last night when I was doing my workout, my weight training workout, and I'm doing wide-angle pull-ups and also chin-ups, So I would do them, and I could do an unusually large number of pull-ups and chin-ups in the 20 to 25, some on a good day, 27 in a row. Um, And then, but if I put a weight belt on me of 45 pounds, which I can do now, I can get 10 to 15 repetitions. But before when I tried the weight belt, I was only getting maybe three to five, possibly six. That's a big strength gain. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't care about that. I don't care about doing chin-ups with 45 pounds hanging off me. Um, The only reason I'm mentioning this to you is because if you're interested like I am in increasing your overall appearance, if you're interested in increasing your overall youthfulness, which includes strength and reaction time and shape of muscles, and power, then you do want to be doing weight training. You also want to be doing cardiovascular training. Now, of course, weight training, when done a certain way, 
can be quite car- uh, cardiovascularly uh, promoting. So for example, I might do 10 or 15, like last night, I did 15 sets of bench presses. So I'm on a bench and I'm pressing, increasing the weight each time, doing as many as I can, many repetitions as I can until failure. So I'll do that once, I'll wait 30 seconds, I'll do it again, I'll wait 30 seconds, I'll do it again, 15 times. And I can promise you, my heart rate was definitely up there. And then I go from one exercise to the next and I do that for an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. Minimal an hour. So once I started using pregnenolone and I started, you know, I'm 175 pounds now. I've put on 15 pounds of muscle in the last three months because it was a specific goal, a game I wanted to play with myself. So I started out with 25 milligrams of pregnenolone. And uh, then I increased to 100 milligrams taken in the morning. So pregnenolone is great for memory. It's great for brain uh, maintenance. And also, it works extremely well with the other hormone, DHEA, or the adrenal hormone. So many of you have heard me say before that DHEA is an adrenal hormone and Uh, It tends to tank after about age 30. It's the most abundant hormone in the body up to that point. So I started out again with 25 milligrams of DHEA. I took it at the same time as pregnenolone. And again, these hormones are known to improve memory, reaction time, focus, mental energy, physical strength, uh, healing time. That's why they do not allow them in athletic events because they are the real deal except they're available, you can get them. So I only provide pharmaceutical grade uh, hormones as well as everything in my supplement uh, line of Blood Detective, which you can, you can view at blooddetective.com. Um, also, by the way, if any of you would like to sort of take a broad look at what your health looks like, I've created a questionnaire which breaks down all the major body systems and you can score yourself so just email me at info at blooddetective.com. I'll say that again. So for my health appraisal questionnaire, email me at info at blooddetective.com. For those of you who actually want to meet with me as a patient, you can do that in person or you can do that uh, over uh, the phone at, at what I call distance consultations. Contact me at that email or you can call me at 914-552-1442. Okay, so what else? do we need to manage our brains? Well, we need folic acid, but not just any folic acid. We want to have folic acid in its active form. And the form I prefer, which is a registered form, is quadrifolic. So quadrifolic is a form of folic acid that is methylated. So it's called 6S5-methyltetrahydrofolic and a glucosamine salt. So that's in my product called active folic acid. The reason I prefer that form is because that's the form that the brain uses to reduce demyelination tendencies to help improve demyelination. So that word demyelination is just a fancy term for the surface of the brain breaking down. So people with multiple sclerosis have demyelinating plaques the kind of areas or punched out lesions in the brain that um, do not allow proper transmission of nerves. But not just that from a physical movement perspective, which is a problem obviously in MS, but if you have demyelination in let's say your hippocampus, which is a major area of the brain for memory and, and acquiring new memories, then you should be thinking about getting active folic acid. And the active folic acid should always be given with a certain amount of activated, not activated B6, but B6 hydrochloride. That, that is a, a really good form that works well with the methylated folic acid. So methylation problems, many of you know what those are. They're basically healing problems. Many individuals with memory issues and cardiovascular issues and uh, autoimmune issues and cancers, all of these conditions tend to have a hypomethylation problem, meaning that the methylation activity of the body overall is deficient. 
There is something called hypermethylation issues, but most of the problems that are associated with memory and all of those other health problems I just mentioned, which tend to have memory issues associated with them, all seem to stem from methylation issues. So I mentioned that folic acid should be in a methylated form. The minimum that a person of normal weight should take is about 3,400 micrograms. That's 3,400 micrograms, along with about 50 milligrams of B6, a little bit of vitamin B2, so it works better, 25 milligrams of B2, and about 1,000 micrograms of B12. But again, not just any B12. It's got to be methylated B12, what's called methylcobalamin. And then the, the last thing that works, uh, or one of the, the minimum things I should say, the, the next uh, most important thing that helps the body use folic acid better is uh, betaine. Okay, what's known as trimethylglycine. So trimethylglycine is betaine and 500 milligrams of betaine. And I'm going to repeat this along with 1,000 micrograms of B12, 3,400 micrograms of folic acid, 50 milligrams of B6, and 25 of B2 is a very solid brain support. Not only just for brain, so that would be the the, the milligrams and microgram doses for a normal weight person uh, per day. Then, another reason why you can't think is because you're not getting proper blood flow to your brain. So one of the ways uh, in, to improve blood flow to the brain, and some of you are saying ginkgo biloba. Yes, that, that's useful. Uh, I think there's something much more useful. And uh, it's called, I call it natokine Anticoagulant Plus. So natokine is, as many of you may know, it's fermented form of Japanese soy. And the active enzyme, that's the anticoagulant enzyme, there's actually two of them in the Japanese soy, which I've concentrated in my product, is natokinase and also ceratopeptidase. So natokinase and ceratopeptidase are required to work together for best results. The natokinase should be about 150 milligrams. The ceratopeptidase, only about 22 and a half milligrams. And if you mix that with bromelain, the digestive enzyme, at just 33 milligrams, and then sprinkle it with a, about 200 milligrams of rutin, then you have a very effective anticoagulant. So I've looked at the science on this and I presented some scientific papers to cardiologists, which are of course very, very concerned and uh, deal with on a daily basis practically, coagulation issues and clotting issues or thrombotic issues with their patients. But the other group of doctors that uh, need to know about this as well are the uh, a cancer specialist, the oncologist. So I presented a talk, and I mentioned this uh, in my prior show, to an oncologist and cardiologist and some other healthcare providers, and I gave them the, the materials on how well natokine uh, or natokinase itself favorably affects coagulation. It helps reduce clotting tendencies. I mean, really effectively. And what amazes me about this is that there are lots of supplements, nutritional supplements, which are said to affect coagulation. Another one, uh, which is, is worth mentioning, is vitamin E. But my point, though, is they don't all work. Natokinase really can work. So effectively, I need to caution you to not take it if you're on any other blood thinners in terms of medications. You need to have this monitored properly. It affects a multitude of coagulation pathways. Now, what does this all have to do with how you think? Well, if you have microclotting, small clots that get in your brain, and a lot of people do over the course of their lives, what happens is this. I want you to visualize this. So you've got all these miles of, of, of capillaries of, uh, uh, in the brain. And then you have thickening of the blood vessels from aging and bad diet and genetics and other factors. And then the blood 
itself gets thicker, it gets more viscous, it tends, has a tendency to clot. So these clots form and then they block off the microcirculation which goes to the brain matter. And then when a person eventually gets, let's say, an MRI, the doctor will say, the neurologist will say, oh, look at all these old, these old areas of clotting and a brain death. And we might call those transient ischemic attacks or TIAs, but they'll say, don't worry, those are old. If the person isn't having some acute stroke episode, somehow neurologists, and I am generalizing here, so keep that in mind, but I just see this over and over again, they pay no attention to these areas other than to say, yeah, well, you know, that, that might have to do with their memory issues now, but there isn't really much of a focus. So those of you out there that have been told this, uh, and you're, you're thinking, you're saying, yeah, what Dr. Walt's saying is true. My, my neurologist pointed these out. They're on my report, but, or they're on my report. No one even mentioned this to me. And, and no focus on anticoagulation was, was mentioned. Well, let's, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you why that is. I, I'm at a loss for words and why medicine doesn't do lots of things it should. But uh, practically everyone might benefit from the science that shows that natokinase, along with those other enzymes, the ceratopeptidase and the bromelain and, the, and rutin also, they're all synergistic for improving the blood flow, improves the blood flow, strong anti-inflammatory effects, which can improve the perfusion of blood and its needed oxygen and nutrition to the brain matter. So very, very important, underappreciated nutrient for why you can't think. Vitamin D, that's another one. Vitamin D is needed for neuroprotection, for neurostructure. So very important. In fact, the lower levels of vitamin D, even low normal folks, are associated with increased risk of not just all-cause morbidity and mortality, but also for dementia. Getting back to toxins, when I mention the toxins, I should mention that the very least a person should be thinking about from a detoxification perspective on a daily level. Because guess what, folks? It's, again, so important you hear me saying this, is that it's the detoxification you do on a steady basis that's going to add up to helping you out from a brain perspective as opposed to some three, five, or 10-day detox fast. That, even if that were effective in removing every toxin in your body, which it's not most likely, but let's say it is, give you the benefit of the doubt, then your brain has to recover from the years and years and years and years of being exposed. And as far as building the brain and, and, and promoting neuroplasticity, that's not something that takes a week or a month, or six months. It may, not, it may take more than a year. It may take a few years to really combat it. I personally did not notice improvements in certain aspects of my neuroplasticity. Some of them took 10 years for my multiple sclerosis to respond. Other things responded within several months based on my father's work with me, he was a doctor in this area. So it can take several months, it can take several years. And that's just a fact. It does depend on what the cause or causes of your neuroplastic problems are. But if you can't think right, if you can't focus right, if things are taking just too long to get to the surface of your mind, if you can't get those words right, you can't find those words, you have a history, God forbid, of dementia, you need to hit it. You know, there was a researcher, I believe, on a TED Talk who is, uh, honestly, I can't help but make fun of her because she was just pathetic. She was just saying, oh, poor me, and I've got a, such a strong family history, and these genes are there for dementia, it's going to happen. And, you know, I'm listening to her, and it's clear that she didn't know anything nutritionally. Even her physical appearance was clear. She didn't even know the basics of dieting. Uh, so 
that's just sad to me because if she knew just how to clean up her diet alone, that could make a tremendous contribution to her at least delaying the onset of her genetic propensity for dementia. My point here is that even if it's written the cards for you, even if the genetics are super strong, the very least is you probably can delay the onset of dementia. But there are many instances where the presence of genes, broken genes, folks, does not guarantee you the condition. This is why I'm yet not in favor of all these genetic tests people are getting done. I do like the MTHFR gene, though. I've been doing that test for over 20 years, and that's covered by your regular insurance. But people are spending all kinds of money on these genetic panels because they're interesting because they have misinterpreted this and this information as something that would actually change what practitioners can do. And they almost never do. So that's a bit upsetting. The way the scenario works out is a person will come to me and say, Dr. Wald, here's a list of all the genes that I have wrong. Um, and uh, I'll say, okay, so who ordered this? And some of them will say, well, I got it myself and I got it through this company or that company. So what do I do about it? And I'll say, well, none of these have been shown except for MTHFR to be even uh, something that we, we know much about. So I, I let them know that even though we now know all of these gene glitches in this person, we're still going to be cleaning up their diet based on other non-gene factors. Unless the genes also showed that they had a propensity towards celiac disease, then of course we're going to remove gluten. But many of these individuals remove gluten anyway. I only do tests that provide information to me beyond a guess. So what about the gut? Okay, well, you guessed it. If you have a toxic gut, you have endotoxins that can make their way into your bloodstream, cross the blood-brain barrier, and start to promote brain decay. So probiotics are very important to help restore the normal microbiota of the gut. But there are so many different probiotics out there. What do you possibly do? Well, I always start people on a combination of four or so different forms of lactobacillus, like lactobacillus acidophilus, lactobacillus plantarum, particularly important for the small intestine, and uh, a few others, along with at least two major forms of bifidobacterium, like bifidobacterium lactis and bifidobacterium bifidum. And I want, you got to make sure that you've got this combination in a, in, a, in a proprietary blend of at least 100 billion CFU count. So 100 billion would be about one capsule. You can find that in my superbugs. But then depending on the rest of your health, there may be additional types of probiotics. But most people don't seem to distinguish probiotics. The only way they tend to distinguish them is just based on the number of them. Um, and that's just not enough. It has to do with what it is you're using them for. But as a general gut cleanup, that's how I put together my Superbugs product with the 100 billion CFU. And the CFUs are the type of uh, system used for reliable uh, counting of the bugs. If you've got any other type of probiotic that uses any other system of counting up the bugs, it's completely unreliable not to be trusted. Next, we need to focus on our adrenal glands. As we all know, so many factors in life play upon our adrenal glands. So we want to reduce our stress. We want to work on coping mechanisms so that our internalization of external events in life have less of an impact by practicing techniques, for example, like framing or reframing, how we perceive external events and how we let them affect us. Again, that is a whole other topic, but there is 
a lot of work that um, I am doing more and more with my patients on having them develop better ways of coping. It's not as simple as you saying, I'm not going to let that stress affect me. That's not it. <laughs> um, maybe part of it, but I'm talking about developing effective ways of managing your life and people around you and how you interact with them and how you interact with life in general so that there is less of an impact on your nervous system. If I were to be asked, okay, well, what nutritionally would I recommend? Yes, there are some specific things that I would recommend uh, to people that uh, are looking to herbally support their, their, their adrenal glands. And they would include, at a minimum, uh, cordyceps, uh, panax ginseng, definitely licorice root, rhodiola, ashwagandha, and erythrococcus, uh, usually in the, in the root extract form. So I'm going to say that again. Cordyceps, panax ginseng, erythrococcus, ashwagandha, rhodiola, and licorice. If you have hypertension, you wouldn't want to take licorice or you at least want to be monitored because licorice can cause blood pressure increases. Do not confuse licorice root with deglycerinated licorice. Deglycerinated means that the glyceriza has been removed. That's the fact that might increase blood pressure. And for a person with low adrenal function and low blood pressure, you want to take licorice root. But if you have reflux and you want to diminish that, you'd want to take deglycerinated chewable licorice. That's really effective. So these herbs are adaptogenic. And what they do is they help the body adapt to stress better. So I have those mixed up in what I call adrenal base. And I'd have a person take three capsules a day of those products in standardized herbal forms. You need to have them standardized. You can't just have some practitioner give you some mixture of herbs that they, t that they put together in front of you because you don't know what you're taking. And uh, you have no standardization. And your adrenals don't like that. Your body doesn't like that. Okay, okay. And last but not least today... I talked about the pregnenolone before, the DHEA, very, very good for brain stabilization because as the brain decays, usually the level of these, levels of these hormones either go down or the body's receptivity to the amount in the blood reduces. But I also very much like to use herbs. The herbs that I tend to use in standardized form as a general sort of hormonal tonic in the body is erythrococcus, astragalus, the black gohash, uh, 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 salt palmetto berries, uh, parsley, alfalfa, and prickly ash bark. And I've added those up in an endocrine tincture. And I'll usually have a person take one dropper of that per day. And I suppose the very last thing I've got to mention is what I call the phytocannabinoids, phyto, P-H-Y-T-O, cannabinoids. It's a hemp oil extract that I've put together where I've used, I have a full spectrum product with supercritical CO2 extraction, uh, which is the method of uh, production, which is what you want. So this hemp extract is 26%. And we know that hemp and the stimulation of the cannabinoid receptors in the brain is has a positive neuroplastic effect. Okay, so there you've heard it. Why you can't think, there may be a lot of reasons for it. I hope that some of the, the herbs and some of the vitamins and minerals and herbs and nutrients that I've talked about make sense. Contact me again to get my... Uh, full questionnaire at info at blooddetective.com and you can sort of check where you're at to contact me directly to work with me either at a distance or in person. My number is 
1442. Continue to send me the rest of your show topics there as well. My website with tons of free content and videos is intmedny.com. Thank you all very much, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Too late.